0: Life Audio.
1: Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, we wanted to talk about arguments for the resurrection, arguments for the resurrection. And after a word from our sponsors, we'll get started on the topic today.
0: Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free.
1: Today's culture brings with it uh, an environment of anti-supernaturalism. And in terms of those who are against the supernatural, these same people are also against the existence of miracles. But the issue for Christianity is that our whole objective, our whole message, our whole um, evangelism effort is rooted in the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Paul writes, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. So our preaching, our teaching all of our efforts as it relates to the gospel is rooted in this reality, this historical occurrence of the resurrection without the resurrection. All of our doctrines are in vain. All of our teaching is in vain. All of our preaching is in vain. All of our, um, evangelistic efforts and our discipleship efforts are in vain if the resurrection did not occur. So everything rests on the resurrection. This was the pivotal uh, occurrence that Jesus prophesied about. And then even after the resurrection, uh, it says that he rose up with all power in his hands. So everything that we believe in, Rest on the resurrection. The resurrection is not mythology. This is not Greek mythology we're talking about. The resurrection actually happened. The resurrection uh, gave life, both literally and metaphorically. So if we're talking about having power to resolve marital conflict, that power is a residual effect of the resurrection if we're talking about um, praying to uh, seek God's face and will regarding the situation, that ability to even talk to God is a residual effect of the resurrection. So the resurrection is foundational. It's uh, historical. It's evidentiary. It's also experiential, meaning that, Um, our relationships, uh, the ability to love your neighbor as yourself, that power that, uh, uh, that comes with being able to love people that you don't like stems from the resurrection. So let's just take a look at some of the arguments for the resurrection. So perhaps the transformation, uh, number one uh, of the disciples should be one of the evidence for the resurrection. The change in these men from fishermen, from tax collectors, from ordinary men to becoming evangel- evangel- evangelists uh, should be an indicator that something happened. And it happened after the resurrection, where they came to themselves, when after spending three and a half years with Jesus Christ, they became the men that God wanted them to be. This is why in the scriptures it talks about uh, some were confused uh, uh, in regards to uh, the boldness of these men, the theology of these men. How is it that these regular men who never uh, were given the title of rabbi these these ordinary men who were not teachers in the synagogues. How is it that they 're now able to preach with boldness and to preach with uh, theological soundness? It was because something happened after the resurrection, they came to themselves. so in Acts two and fourteen or acts four one through thirty one It says the conversion of the apostles demonstrates that something happened. Their testimonies culminated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It makes no sense for the apostles to go through all the things they went through, such as torture, if their message of the resurrection was a lie. Think about it. How many people in their right mind would die for a lie? Not too many. Not too many. And these disciples, uh, there's no evidence that they were prone to delusion. There was no evidence that they were prone to make up uh, stories. These men, they witnessed the persecution of the Messiah. They witnessed his death. And they witnessed his physical resurrection. They witnessed all of that, and because they saw what happened, they saw uh, the truthfulness of Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, their lives changed. They went from being cowards to being gospel heroes. They were able to use uh, the power that God gave them to transform the world. Then secondly, not only... Where the disciples transformed at, at, not only is that an evidence, but the next evidence is the Bible can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted because the Bible is a historical document. the Bible as history bibliographical test used by historians and scholars can validate that the transmission of the, uh, the New Testament as well as Old Testament is trustworthy. And not only that, the Bible is a book. Yes, it's God's word. Yes, it's the book of life. But it also contains history. There are stories in the Bible that exist nowhere else, extantly, outside of the Bible. Meaning that the Bible uh, states or mentions historical data that can't be found anywhere else. But yet uh, archaeology is slowly catching up to the Bible and uh, matching up some of these some of this information that scientists are looking for. There was a time when people ridiculed and talk, uh, talked about uh, Christians because we, the, the Old Testament talked about the Hittite civilization. And at that point, There was no indication that this uh, civilization existed, but lo and behold, eventually it was discovered. So is the Bible reliable? Yes, the Bible is reliable. When we use the same criteria, the same uh, methods that historians use to um, vet and to prove whether or not a document is reliable, the Bible passes all the tests. So let's look at the New Testament. We're not going to touch on the Old Testament in this episode, but let's look at the New Testament. So in um, the, the process of trying to figure out if a document is trustworthy, scientists use a number of criterias. One is uh, the closeness of the event. So if something happened today and you wrote about it, let's say... Uh, five days from now. Uh, and then you compare that to another eyewitness and they wrote about the same thing a year from now. Well, more than likely your writing, uh, within five days from now will be, uh, likely more precise and more, uh, tr- trustworthy than someone who wrote it a year from now. Why? Because people, um, have faulty memories as, as in relation to um, the time of the event and when the writing uh, was finished. Let us take a break to recognize our sponsors and we'll be right back. So if you have two eyewitnesses, uh, the individual that is testifying about or writing about the event um with short proximity to the actual event, that's probably more trustworthy than somebody who who waits a a year, two years, three years uh, before they write it. Because uh, in many cases, uh, people's memory become faulty as time goes by. So that's the main criteria that uh, historians are using when they're trying to ascertain whether or not a document is reliable. So if we used the same criteria, and by the way, uh, many historians will tell you uh, that if you can find an ancient document um, which was written between 50 to 100 years uh, after the event, that is still good versus anything after that. So let's say uh, if Jesus died in 33 A.D. and um, the writing is done in 60 A.D., then you have this 27 year gap. Well, it is it still fits the uh the, the the number that historians are comfortable with uh because you're only talking about 27 years from uh 8033 to 8060. So in that case, that is a good document to look at meaning that uh it's not prone to genealogy, it's not prone to fables. So th- the further Uh, uh, there's a time lapse between the actual event and the time of the composition Um, people can twitch stories people can insert stories so the closer the composition is to the time of the event the better so let's look at for an example when you do a comparison of ancient texts in Caesar, Caesar we have ancient documents from Julius Caesar and he wrote the Gallic Wars well if you look at Caesar's writing from the time uh, of his composition uh, to the time of the event, there is approximately 950 years. That's a long time. Then even if you look at Homer, Ili- uh, Iliad, and the Odyssey, you're talking about a time gap of 400 years, meaning the, uh, the time of the event from the time that this was written, 400 years apart. But when you look at the New Testament, when we look at our oldest manuscript, we're only talking about a time gap of 40 years. But yet, people are not doubting the secular uh, documents. They're only doubting the New Testament documents because they have a prior bias. But when we use the same litmus test that historians use for secular work, we'll soon realize uh, that the New Testament stands above and beyond uh, all other documents. So let's look at something else as relates to the New Testament documents. The more documents, the more manuscripts you have, the better chance you have at discovering what actually happened. So uh, if you have an ancient manuscript and you only have two copies, and those two copies could be uh, totally accurate, or they may not be accurate. So the more manuscripts you have, the better chance you have to figure out or ascertain if those events actually happened. So the more manuscripts you discover from, uh, uh, from let's say uh, Socrates, the more manuscripts you discover from Julius Caesar, uh, the the better chance you have to compare those manuscripts and to see. If uh, those writings were actually, number one, from Julius Caesar, and number two, is it what he wrote? And when you talk about the New Testament, it's the same criteria. We look at these manuscripts, and we compare to one another. And if there is uh, variance, or if there's some writings that doesn't match up with the other ones, then it probably the one that you have is probably, um, again, it, it's not a good copy. So the more manuscripts you have to use to compare to one another, the better chance you have to, uh, uh, in terms of its credibility. So just for fun, I want to share this. Uh, for Julius Caesar, we've only discovered 10 manuscripts from him as it relates to his writing, Gallic Wars. Uh, from Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, there are only 643 copies. And I use the word only because we're comparing it to the New Testament. Now, look at the New Testament. We have almost 6,000 plus copies of um, the New Testament, which means Whenever we discover another manuscripts, and they're still discovering manuscripts, whenever we discover another manuscripts, we can always take that new manuscript and compare it to the other 6,000-plus manuscripts. So that's how uh, vetted manuscripts work. And when you use the same criteria, again, that uh, historians use for secular work, you'll see that the New Testament passed the test above all else. So as we look at um, the trustworthiness of the New Testament, and the New Testament, the reason why I'm going over this is because the New Testament says that Jesus resurrected. And if the New Testament is trustworthy, then what it says about the resurrection must be trustworthy. Then there are external evidence of Jesus' resurrection. We see in Josephus' work, we see that... Um, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, lived around A.D. 37 through 100. Um, He wrote in his Jewish Antiquities, A.D. 95, uh, he says, Now there was about that time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. So Josephus... He lived uh, as a contemporary of, uh, John the, uh, of John, the Apostle John, uh, 80, 90, and, and 95, and so forth. And so he is not a Christian. Josephus is the Jewish historian. He's chronologuing uh, the events that's hap- that happened around his lifetime. And he's boldly declaring that Jesus is the Messiah based on what the eyewitnesses have told him. And he's basically stating that um, if you don't believe Josephus, he's he's quoting the eyewitnesses because they believed that Jesus rose on the third day and that Jesus appeared to them on the third day. So Josephus, again, he's not a follower of Jesus Christ. He's simply documenting uh, the events of Christ's life and his res- resurrection. And something happened. And this is why uh, he's quoting these disciples and even inferring that he accepts the information that he got from the eyewitnesses, the followers of Jesus Christ, that he indeed rose on the third day. So this is external evidence demonstrating that Jesus did indeed rise. Then let's look at uh, some more outside evidence. We can look at uh, Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome wrote a letter. This letter was to the church of Corinth. And in this letter, he provides some very interesting information in regards to the resurrection. He speaks of the resurrection in this letter. This letter uh, is only 63 years after the death of Christ and during the same time as John's apocalyptic letter that we call the Revelations. It is an early date that supports the argument for the resurrection, and so when you read this letter, you'll see uh, Clement attesting to the resurrection and verifying that the resurrection actually happened, and it's called the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, the first epistle to the uh, epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. Then. We can take a look at St. Ignatius, um, who wrote a letter in the first century, and his letter to the Smyrnaeans, A.D. 110. He was the bishop of Antioch, and he says, For all these sufferings he endured for our sake that we might be saved, and he truly suffered as also he truly raised himself up. Nor is it the case, as some unbelievers affirm, that he suffered in semblance. It is they who are semblance, and according to their opinion, so it should happen unto them, for they are unsubstantial and spirit-like. So again, uh, St. Ignatius writes, for all these sufferings he endured for our sakes, that we might be saved, and he truly suffered, as also he truly raised himself up. And this is uh, A.D. one ten. Again, if uh, Revelation is written around A.D. 90, and uh, St. Ignatius is writing in A.D. one ten you see the succession of the doctrine of the resurrection. It's not a made-up concept. It actually happened. It's not mythological. And so, we as Christians, we can stand boldly in knowing that the resurrection actually happened, that the resurrection is historical, according to Josephus, according to Clement of Alexandria, uh, uh, I mean, St. Clement, according to St. Ignatius. um, We can trust the resurrection as it relates to his historicity and its effectiveness. Again, look at the lives of the disciples, uh, how they were changed. Uh, Peter was changed forever. Um, he, he went from being the impetuous one to becoming uh, a pastor. And Peter believed in Christ and his resurrection so much. The tradition has it that he chose to be crucified upside down and no one in their right mind again would die for a lie. And so for us, we are experiencing the residual effects of the resurrection, the power that comes with it, the power to love your neighbor, the power uh, to tame your tongue, the, the power to forgive the unforgivable, the power to love your enemies. Th- this power it's the same power that raised up Jesus Christ. So, if we want to change, if we want our life to be different, we must surrender to Jesus Christ. And with knowing Jesus Christ, uh, we afforded this resurrection power to help us along life's journey. So, as we operate through faith, the power comes from God. We are bearers of the power. The light comes from God. We are bearers of that light. So don't, uh, diminish the historicity of the resurrection and the power that comes with it. Well, I hope that you received a blessing, uh, as it relates to information to help you on life journey. Uh, we continue to solicit your prayers as we, uh, train more Christians. Uh, we just had a wonderful time in Auburn, California this past week, uh, this past week and sharing the arguments for the resurrection. Uh, so uh, if you are interested in being trained, uh, go on our website, look at our calendar. You can contact us at info at srministries.org. And if you uh, are led to support us and we need your support uh, on a monthly basis, please go to our website and you can also email us at info at srministries.org. well continue to live for Christ and to do for truth what so many people do for a lie. God bless you.
0: Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister, Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries.
1: And as always, we would like to thank our friends at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this broadcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer.
0: Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. God invites us to
1: cultivate thankful hearts by turning our eyes toward Him in good times and bad To listen to more Abide Christian Meditations, just go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Christian Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.